Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. John, chapter 12, I'll be preaching this morning, verses 12 through 26. And as you turn there, let us ask the Lord's blessing on the reading and preaching of His Holy Word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to You now thankful for Your Word, and we ask now that You would do a work in our hearts by the power of Your Spirit as we hear the reading and preaching of Your Word, that we might receive it with faith and joy, applying it to our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Hear the Word of the Lord now from John chapter 12, 12 through 26. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and was raised from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. May God bless the reading of his holy word and let his church say, Amen. Amen. Sitting between the U.S. Capitol building and the Lincoln Memorial is an area known as the National Mall. The National Mall. One of the great historic sites in our country. It is approximately two miles long and one-third of a mile wide, taking up just over 300 acres right there in our nation's capital. And it's been the place, as you well know, of a number of presidential inaugurations, demonstrations, and protests. It's been reported that some of the, the large crowds that have been there at the National Mall on these historical occasions, 
was reported that for President Johnson's inauguration, there were 1.2 million people gathered there at the National Mall. 1.8 million gathered for President Obama's inauguration. And, and I know this is contested, 800,000 for President Trump's inauguration. And you can dispute those numbers with me after church. For the nation's bicentennial in 1976, a million people gathered there to watch the national fireworks display. And in 1995, an estimated one million gathered for the Million Man March there at the National Mall. And you can imagine that picture in your mind right now of the Lincoln Memorial and the obelisk of the Washington Memorial and the U.S. Capitol Building. You can imagine the reflection pool that's there and you can imagine the lawn that was there. Um, you can imagine the, the large crowds and the expanse and sea of people as far as the eye can see. This story, I thought about that as I read and studied this story here in John chapter 12. It's Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And it's so important that all four Gospel writers include an account of this story. And the, the flannel graph that I was taught this story by in Sunday school, I don't know if you've learned Sunday school Bible lessons from flannel graph. If you did, you grew up right. The flannel graph version of Palm Sunday pales in comparison to the magnitude of this momentous occasion. As we think about the crowds on the National Mall filled with a sea of people, that should conjure up the image in our minds of Jesus coming into Jerusalem on this day, riding on the back of a donkey. The historian Josephus reported that at one Passover celebration, there were 2.7 million people gathered in Jerusalem for Passover. John doesn't give us an estimate of the people that were there, but he does tell us that it was a massive, large crowd of people who were in Jerusalem. And you can just imagine all of the excitement as people began to declare that the King of Israel is making His entry into the city. You can just imagine as the crowds began to line the roads in worship of the new king as he rode a donkey into Jerusalem. It's interesting how he rode into Jerusalem. He didn't come with an army. He didn't ride in on a war horse and chariot. He didn't ride and march into Jerusalem with captives. He didn't ride into Jerusalem with a royal entourage dressed in the finest clothes, donning a marvelous crown. No. He didn't have any of these things. And in fact, the very people who hail Him, the King of Israel, will soon call for 
His execution upon the cross. What was so triumphant about the triumphant entry? It doesn't seem very triumphant on the surface other than the masses of people who were gathered that day. What's so important about this passage, what is so triumphant about the triumphal entry is that the arrival of Jesus is the public declaration that the King has arrived. It marks the beginning of the end for the reign of sin. It is Jesus who will triumph over death, hell, and the grave and setting free all those whom He calls to be part of His kingdom. We learn here in this passage that sin cannot reign in the hearts of those ruled by Jesus. That's why this triumphal entry is so triumphant. It, it marks the beginning of the end for sin. Sin cannot reign in the heart ruled by King Jesus. And I want you to see here why that's the case. I want to show you two reasons why in this passage. Sin cannot reign in the heart that's ruled by Jesus. There's two reasons, and then we'll see how this becomes possible. Number one, sin cannot reign in the heart that's ruled by Jesus because Jesus saves those who are tyrannized by sin. That's what He does. Jesus saves those who are tyrannized by sin. You get the picture in your mind. Jesus on the back of a donkey riding into Jerusalem with the masses of people gathered with palm branches, waving them and worshiping Jesus. They sing to Him a section from Psalm 118, verse 25. This portion of the Psalms is known as the Halal. And it was part of the corporate congregational singing that would take place at many of the important Jewish holidays. It became associated with the, the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Passover. And, and all the congregation would gather together and they would sing through Psalm 113, through Psalm 118. And as they would approach the end of Psalm 118, there would be a crescendo that would take place as worshipers began to wave palm branches and began to sing, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless You from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. And He has made His light shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. They would sing that out as they would wave a national symbol, kind of like our own American flag. We wave at gatherings. The Jews would sing that song and they would wave palm branches as they would cry forth and sing this psalm to God. Here in John chapter 12, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem triumphantly, they begin to sing this psalm to Him. They are declaring, as we see here in verse 13, 
Hosanna, save us, Lord, we pray. Save us now is what Hosanna means. And they are declaring that the very one that they had expected to come, the Messiah, He is here. He has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And they declare that He is blessed. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. The King of Israel, they cry out. He is the one that they have expected. He is the one who will usher in salvation for God's people. John explains for us that this was in fulfillment of a prophecy regarding the Messiah found in Zechariah chapter 9. You see that there in verses 14 and 15. John even summarizes the passage for us in verse 15. Fear not! daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This king ushers in a time of peace. He doesn't need to march into Jerusalem with an army. He doesn't need to march into Jerusalem with all of the ancient instruments of war. This is a king of peace who ushers in a time of peace for God's people, not war. His is a reign that extends from sea to shining sea, as they might say. His is a reign that will cause the glory of God to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And John is explaining that in the triumphal entry of Jesus, this is all fulfilled as He rides into Jerusalem triumphantly on a donkey, a symbol of peace to the worship and praise and adoration of the crowds. This the disciples didn't even fully understand what was happening. I mean, you can imagine that they're there, they're witnesses to all of this, but John tells us in verse 16, I mean, he says the disciples really didn't even understand this at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that These words had been written about Him. They remembered the the great prophecies of the Old Testament that had foretold that the Messiah would come. And then they understood these things. John leaves no detail unexplained for us, giving the account in verse 17 that the crowd that was there, some of the crowd were even those who were witness to the resurrection of Lazarus. They were at the tomb. They were there. They they heard the voice of Jesus when He called forth Lazarus to come out of the grave and raised Him from the dead. And that that was the event. That was was the spark that has uh, ignited all the events that will soon take place leading up to the cross. This is the reason why the crowd went to meet Him. They had heard that He had done this sign. We read in verse 18. And, and the, the thinking here is that if Jesus is able to raise a man from the dead, think of what He can do politically. Think of what He could do, how He could overthrow the tyranny of the Romans. He could institute for us a time of peace and success when we have been so tyrannized by foreign invaders. 
Israel had had a long history of being tyrannized by foreign invaders. If you're reading through the Old Testament right now, you know that the time that Israel is a nation unto itself under the theocratic rule of God, that time is essentially very short, isn't it? I mean, no sooner have they gone into the promised land than they rebel against God and, and the Canaanites that live in the land of uh, Canaan, they begin to oppress God's people. And they were oppressed by them in God's judgment. And God raised up judges to judge them. And then soon the kingdom is divided and soon the Assyrians come in and, and conquer the northern kingdom. And soon the Babylonians come in and conquer the southern kingdom. And, and even in their return, they were still conquered and ruled by foreign nations. The Israelites, the Jews, longed for a time when they would live free from the tyranny of wicked rulers, when they would live free from the tyranny of evil empires. It's not hard for us to imagine that in our own day and culture. We've seen the horrible atrocities committed by tyrannical regimes and tyrannical governments and tyrannical rulers who rule with an iron fist, who are cruel and oppressive, who take advantage of those in their kingdom, who, who allow little to no freedoms, who, who uh, govern and mitigate every detail of every person's life and, and seek to crush and destroy any opposition that would stand up against them and any speech that would stand in opposition to them. We think about that, what a picture it is for sin. You see, if the Israelites needed freedom from tyrannical rulers, Jesus would have done that marching into Jerusalem. He could have done it in an instant. But He didn't set them free from Roman oppression. What He was setting them free from was the tyranny of sin. Sin tyrannizes us, doesn't it? It rules and reigns in our hearts. It holds us captive to sinful desires. It oppresses us. It's a cruel taskmaster. It brings shame and reproach to our hearts. And yet at the same time, we find great comfort in our sin, don't we? We enjoy our sin. It gives us a sense of autonomy and self-control or so we perceive. But like many of the evil tyrannical rulers that have taken place who later reveal their nefarious motives, so too sin. We never realize the, the deep control that sin has on our lives until we need to break free from it. Until sin turns on us and becomes a cruel taskmaster and begins to ruin and destroy our lives and we're unable to break free from sin. And here in this passage of Scripture, what we see that the Lord Jesus Christ is the great liberator from sin. He's the one who brings peace from sin. He's the one who sets us free from the captivity to sin. He's the one who gives us new life when we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. I wonder this morning if you know that freedom from sin. 
Maybe you know that freedom from sin in some degrees, but in other degrees in your life, you find that you're still very much under the rule and reign of sin. You still find yourself with your desires and and passions at war against each other in your own heart. The very things that you don't want to do, you find yourself doing, and the very things that you know you should do, those are the things that you don't do. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7. Even as Christians, we, we struggle with the remaining corruption of sin on our own hearts when Jesus has set us free from sin. The good news of this passage is that if you are in Christ Jesus, sin has no claim to rule and reign over you. Sin has no legitimate claim to rule in your heart if you have been set free from King Jesus. Sure, the corruption of sin still remains in our hearts and the reign of sin has been broken, but we've been liberated, haven't we? We find ourselves, by the power of the Holy Spirit, able to gain freedom more and more from our sin as we put to death the remaining corruption of sin in our own hearts and put on the new life that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ that He purchased for us at Calvary and by His resurrection. You see, sin can't reign in the heart that's ruled by Jesus because Jesus has set us free if we're tyrannized by sin. And this morning, if you still find yourself tyrannized by sin, I would just encourage you, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith and trust in Him. And He will set you free and you will be free indeed. Well, there's a second thing that, second reason we're given here. Sin can't reign in our hearts if we're ruled by Jesus because we've been set free from the tyranny of sin. Secondly, Jesus sets free and saves those who are separated by sin. You see, each and every one of us, because of our sin, we are separated from God who is perfectly holy. We see this here as the way is opened up for all those to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 19. As John enjoys irony here in this passage, so we see the ironic words of the Pharisees here in verse 19. They've been plotting to kill Jesus. They've been plotting to kill Lazarus. And all their efforts are are without use. They look here at verse 19. You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. You can hear the hyperbole in their statement, right? Like, kind of like a kid who says, "You never let me eat Oreos and ice cream for breakfast." That's what the Pharisees are doing here. Look, the whole the whole world is going after Jesus now. Everybody's come out to worship Him. All our efforts to stop Jesus have, have been in vain. We are, are powerless to, to stop people from following Him. We've got to kill Him, they're saying. That's what they're thinking. Time is running short. We've, we've got to put Jesus to death. The whole world is coming to see Jesus. And ironically... 
John explains for us, the whole world was coming to see Jesus. Let me show you here in the next couple of verses. We learn in verse 20 that among the Jewish worshipers were Greeks. See that there in verse 20? That there were those who went up to worship at the feast who were Greek. The word here is not for those who are from Greece. Now those who were from Greece were Greeks. But the word that's used here is those who were Hellenized. They were Greek-speaking people. They were Gentiles. And they were there in Jerusalem for Passover. There in Jerusalem was the temple. You've heard about the temple. And there was an outer court at the temple and it was called the Gentile court. And Gentiles who came to Jerusalem and who came to the temple for these holidays, that's where they had to stay. They were confined to the Gentile court. They were not permitted to go any further. They were not permitted entrance into the temple. They were separated from God because they were Gentiles. And here these Gentiles, those who are from the world, they're in Jerusalem for Passover. And what do they want to do? Well, they want to see Jesus, don't they? Look at verse 21. They come to Philip, one of the disciples with a Greek name. That's probably why they came to Philip. Philip, he's got a Greek name, and he's from the area of Galilee. So just like you can hear a Cajun accent, you can hear a Galilean accent. And so here they assume that Philip will probably be the most amicable to their request. He's got a name like theirs, and he has an accent like theirs. And so they go and speak to Philip. And what do they ask? They ask to see Jesus. They don't just want to see Jesus, though, do they? You could, you could literally say they want to have an interview with Jesus. They want to spend time with this Jesus that they have heard about. They've heard, that, they've heard of the signs and wonders that He's done. They've, they've heard that Jesus resurrected a, a man from the dead. And there's all this commotion about Jesus. They've, they've heard Him declared the King of Israel. And so, these Gentiles want to see Jesus. They want to have a conversation with Jesus. And so, Philip... He goes and tells Andrew, and after a consultation with each other, they go and tell Jesus that the nations have come to see Him. Thomas Watson wrote, and the men are studying Thomas Watson's book right now, Thomas Watson wrote that the holiness of God is the intrinsic purity of His nature and His abhorrence of sin. That's why we're separated from God when we're sinful. God can't tolerate sin. Why? Because He in Himself, in His person, is, is perfect in purity and holiness. He absolutely abhors sin. Even the, the smallest mark of sin. There's always been a separation between God and sin. That's the story of Scripture, isn't it? 
You read Genesis chapter 3 and you see that when sin enters into the story that there's a separation. Adam and Eve are, are separated from God. And when God appears at Sinai and, and, and reveals Himself to Moses, there's a separation, isn't there? Because the people are sinful, they can't come up to the mountain and see God. And when the tabernacle is constructed, there's a curtain between the people and the tabernacle so that they cannot look upon the Lord. And when the temple is constructed, there's a tabernacle between the holy place and the outer courts. Why? So that there will be separation between those who are sinful and a perfectly holy God. See, that's what sin does to us. Sin separates us from God. It puts us at distance from God. It makes us unable to reach God or have any sort of communion or fellowship at all with Him because we're sinful and He's perfectly holy. But what we see here in this passage of Scripture is that the Lord Jesus Christ has bridged the gap that separates us from God. He is the temple Himself, isn't He? Isn't that interesting? That Jesus has called His body a, a temple. In John chapter 2. In John chapter 1, He's the one who tabernacles among His people. And here are these Gentiles. They're not permitted to enter into the temple, but here they have an opportunity to have fellowship with the true temple. The Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, in Him, the separation between God and man has been broken. Well, how did that happen? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us that, that, that the curtain that separates the holiness of God from the sinfulness of man, that has been torn into through the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are able to have fellowship with God even though we've been separated by sin because of what Jesus has done. The Gospel of John, I love this book. The Gospel of John, probably written in the late 80s, somewhere in the 80s, shortly after the temple had been destroyed. And what John is writing to is he is writing to Jewish and Gentile Christians who are left wondering, where do we worship now that the temple has been destroyed? What's our identity now that, that Jerusalem has been destroyed and the temple isn't available for us to worship at? How do we have any sort of communion with God? And what the Apostle John is doing is he is writing this Gospel so that Gentile and Jewish Christians can know you don't need the temple to have fellowship with God. You don't need to go to a place to meet God because you've been given the true temple in the person of Jesus Christ. And in Him, the separation between God and man has been repaired and restored. And now Jewish and Gentile Christians together, they make up the people of God. As Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, we have become 
a chosen nation, a holy people, a kingdom of priests that the Lord has chosen for His own possession. You see, sin cannot reign in the heart that's ruled by Jesus because He has set us free from the tyranny of sin and He has restored us who have been separated because of sin. What makes this possible? I want you to see this here in this passage. What makes this possible? Well, look at verse 23. At this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus has been saying, the hour has not yet come. He tells that to His mother at the first miracle that He did, the first sign of turning the water into wine. And, and Jesus' mother comes and says, Jesus, the wedding has has run out of wine. And Jesus says, My hour has not yet come. And when the Feast of Tabernacles had come, Jesus' brothers tell Him, Hey, go up into Jerusalem and show yourself to all your followers. And Jesus tells them, My hour has not yet come. Well, here for the first time in the Gospel of John, look at what we read here in verse 23. Jesus answers, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The nations coming to Jesus, Jesus being hailed the King of Israel, the hour is at hand. The time has come. Jesus is going to go to the cross. Well, why is He going to do that? Well, look at the analogy that Jesus gives here in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of Wheat falls into the earth and dies. It remains alone. Think about a, a little grain of wheat. It's, it's so small you could hardly see it. It seems small and insignificant. It seems unimportant. And it seems useless. But when that seed, when that grain of wheat is buried in the ground, when it is all forgotten about, and presumed dead. That's the moment when that seedling is able to sprout up from the ground and bear much fruit. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's how He's comparing His death. Look at what He says. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, what happens? It bears much fruit. It's good for Jesus to die, is what He's saying. It's, it's beneficial to all of you, Jesus is saying, for me to go to the cross and die. Because in my going to the cross, and in my burial, it will bring forth much fruit. You see, here's how Jesus saves us. Jesus saves us from sin by dying for sin. That's what He does. That's how we're saved. That's the only way that we're saved. Jesus has to die. He has to go to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And in that death, it is a death that brings much fruit. And because of that, the followers of Jesus follow the pattern that He has set. You see, not only does Jesus save us from sin by dying for sin, but He does that so that we can die to our sin. Look at what He says here in this passage. Look at verse 25. 
Whoever loves his life loses it. Well, that was true. This is true of Jesus. Jesus doesn't hold on to his life. He's willing to let it go, but whoever loves his life will lose it. If Jesus had loved his life, he wouldn't be able to be fruitful in this way. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now this is true not only of Jesus, but it's true for who? Jesus' followers as well. Now Jesus isn't saying that in order for us to be saved, we have to die on a cross too. That's not what He's saying. Well, what is He saying here? He is saying that we have to die to what? We have to die to self. We have to bend the knee to King Jesus. If you love your life in this world, you will lose it. But if you will throw off your pride and bend the knee to King Jesus, you will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. So if we're going to serve Jesus and be part of His kingdom, if we're going to be saved by Him, we have to follow in His example and die a death just as Jesus died a death. He must follow me, He says. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The disciple follows the way of the Master. In our day and age, our culture in which we live in, we don't like this. We don't like the message that we have to die to our pride. We don't like the, the idea that we have to die to self. We don't, we don't like the idea that we would have to surrender control of our lives. We don't like the idea that we would have the Lord Jesus Christ ruling and reigning over us. And so people think to themselves, can't I just look to Jesus as a good teacher of morality? And can't I just look to Jesus as a good example of sacrificial love and can't I just look to Jesus as a good model for spirituality? Can't I just look to Jesus as a Savior and nothing else? Do I really need to become like all those fanatical Christians whose lives are changed so that they try to live in accordance with God's Word? Well, if Jesus has changed your heart, that's what you'll do. That's exactly what you'll do. And if you're unwilling to do that, if you're unwilling to surrender to Jesus, then Jesus hasn't changed your heart. You still love your life. And you'll lose it. But if you'll bend the knee to King Jesus, He is there to set you free from the tyranny of sin and the separation from sin. Jesus saves those in bondage to sin by dying for sin so that you and I can die to sin. Sin cannot reign in the heart that's ruled by Jesus because He's King of our hearts. There's another triumphal entry that's going to happen one day, Jesus won't ride in on a donkey 
and he won't ride in to the worship of those gathered on the streets of Jerusalem. This other triumphal entry that's going to happen will happen at the end of human history. Scripture tells us that the trumpet will sound and the heavens will part and every eye will see and behold the Lord Jesus Christ as He comes back, a ruling, reigning, conquering King, displaying His majesty and glory with an angelic host behind Him. It's a call to us to bend the knee to King Jesus now in this life that we might be saved in the next. So that at His next triumphant entry, entry, our knees aren't broken and we perish. What will you do with such an offer of salvation? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the grace that we have received in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that You would convict us of our sin, and I pray for those this morning who are not surrendered to You. I pray that You would conquer their hearts and save them this morning. I pray for those Christians who are here this morning and who are struggling with sin, with perhaps a besetting sin and really wrestling and striving against that. I pray that they would see that sin no longer has a rightful claim over their hearts because the Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns there. Lord, we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.